Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 23rd, and my guest is Arthur Devaney, Professor Emeritus of Economics at University of California at Irvine, and the creator of Evolutionary Fitness, a novel approach to diet and fitness. Art, welcome to Econ Talk. Happy to be here, Russ. I usually start off an interview saying that our topic for today, for today is, and then I fell in the blank, but Art is such an interesting thinker that our topic for today is really what Art finds interesting, which is a pretty diverse group of stuff, baseball, fitness, movies. I hope we can get to all three, and I want to start with baseball, uh, given that the start of the season is just around the corner, and also because you have a forthcoming paper at Economic Inquiry on the relationship between steroid use and home run hitting, and you are skeptical of the mainstream view that steroid hitting has had a big inf- steroid use has had a big influence on home run hitting. So, I'd like you to start off by telling me why you're a skeptic. Well, the data made me do it, as my Old professor Armin Elton used to tell me all the time <laughs> uh, the theory that uh, the home run hitting is uh, enhanced by uh, by steroids, or that in fact, uh, more generally, that there are anything such things as uh, performance enhancing drugs, is uh, largely a myth that's not uh, not supported by uh, by any really strong evidence, other than some some dehydration, which tends to increase the uh, number of red blood cells uh, in, the, in the blood, which helps endurance runners. But otherwise, there are no performance-enhancing drugs. So let's, let me start with the, the most obvious question, which is the, the most publicly identified users of steroids, which are performance-enhancing drugs generally. And let's use that term because, of course, there's besides steroids, there's HGH and who knows what else. Uh, we have Barry Bonds. Uh, we have Mark McGuire and we have Sammy Sosa. They are very large people, which many people assume help them hit home runs, that their upper bodies are enormous. Uh, many people assume that obviously helped them hit home runs, and they did hit a lot of home runs. So what is uh, wrong with that starting point? Well, mass does help a player hit more home runs. Uh, Babe Ruth weighed 251 pounds. And uh, at equal bat speed, a, uh, a heavier player, more massive player, will, will add about 30 feet to the length of the, uh, of the hit. Uh, remember, Hank Greenberg was massive. Babe was massive. massive. Steve Bilko, Dick Stewart, who I played with. Uh, uh, mass does help, but you have to have the, the fine coordination and timing and precision of the swing path in order to... Uh, contact the ball and make make good contact. Contact dominates in terms of uh, how far the ball is going to go. So does backspin. So you have to hit the ball on a slight uppercut and impart the correct kind of uh, backspin on it so that it carries. You remember uh, Hank Aaron was not a very massive player at all. He hit more home runs than anyone. Um, Mass, to build mass, upper body mass, uh, steroids are not really proven to be effective at that. And the, the, the increase in lean body mass that does sometimes result from a combination of hard training and steroids is primarily slow twitch muscle fiber. It's not the fast muscle fibers that impart strength and quickness to an athlete. So that's that's the first point. The second point is that there are many steroid users that it was widespread in the minor leagues, and we never heard of these guys, to pick a few exemplars who happen to have hit a many home runs is kind of bad statistics. You, you can yes, prove your point by simply <laughs> cherry-picking over the yep. sample. You, what we need to do is how many failures were there, and the failure rate is enormous. In fact, if you look at this, the, the little thing, uh, Stephen Cole and... Uh, 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 Cole and... Uh, and Stiegler did, Steve, uh, George Stiegler's son, 
they showed that the only evidence they, they were able to amass with the known, known steroid users was that uh, they suffered, the hitters suffered a slight decrease in performance. Now, why would that be the case? Well, who would be the people who would use steroids? They're near the end of their career, and this has, of course, been proven true of many. They're under enormous pressure, like A-Rod, not to hit home runs, and, and therefore highly stressed, or they were injured. And it turns out that uh, there's a sort of a selection bias. The steroid users turned out primarily to be people who were injured or at the end of their careers, which explains Stiegler's result that uh, the steroid users actually had a slight decrement in their performance. Let me ask you to clarify the the um, point you made earlier. You said mass helps you hit home runs. Uh, it's clear that many, many major league baseball players use weightlifting to increase mass, especially upper body. Are you saying that the steroid use did not enhance that weight training? Taken together, steroids and, uh, and, uh, and weightlifting uh, has, a, has a checkered uh, history. In some instances, particularly for power lifters, massive amounts of training and ex- extreme over, overuse of steroids does result in larger body mass. But all that body mass is slow. You can, you, can, you can make an equivalent gain in body mass as a baseball player without using steroids. All you have to do is work out. And Mark McGuire is no less massive now than he was when he was hitting. Have you seen him recently in spring training? No. He's gigantic. Uh, the muscle mass he built is uh, early in his career. By the way, his brother was a bodybuilder and introduced him to bodybuilding. But in his in his rookie season, when he I think hit fifty home, forty eight. What he he had a extraordinarily successful rookie season. If you look at pictures of him, he was quite small, uh, which is partly your point. Obviously, a a, a thin, unmuscled person. Uh, Ted Williams, Lou Brock, a lot of people can hit the ball a long way yes. uh, without lifting weights, without steroids. Um, but Mark McGuire clearly changed, and Barry Bonds, clearly changed their upper bodies. Yes. Are you saying that steroids did not help that? And are you also saying that to the extent that their upper bodies did grow, it didn't help them hit home runs because of their it didn't help their bat speed? It doesn't help bat speed. We know that massive muscle bulk with uh, – the kind that's created by weightlifting of the sort that uh, bodybuilders do, at least. This is where the only research is done. Builds uh, primarily the slow-twitch muscle fibers, not the fast-twitch muscle fibers. Which helps you lift a very large bat, or like a 400-pound bat, or a very large 250-pound baseball, but it doesn't help you swing the bat quickly. It doesn't help you swing the bat quickly at all. And if you look at Mark McGuire's record, remember he hit 30 home runs per hit, uh, uh, 0.3 home runs per hit, even when he first broke into the league. Uh, and it, he hit, uh, over, over his whole career, he hit 0.36 home runs per hit as, as one measure uh, of his power. So this is a situation where he had a few uh, peak years. In fact, his, his last year, 2001, he hit uh, about uh, half a home run for every uh, Every hit, about half of his hits were home runs. Um, by that time, he had perfected the new modern swing. Remember, there's been a technological change in baseball uh, in terms of the uh, swing, the Charlie Lau swing, which uh, George, George Brett used many years ago to great effect, and uh, which is now essentially the, the swing that people use, is that... Uh, they don't rotate the forearms and pull the bat offline as they swing through it anymore. If you look at Mark's early career, he's a leaned-back, rollover forearm type of hitter, which alters the swing path of the bat. The later years of his career, he, he, he probably had the most beautiful swing in all of baseball. People don't give him credit for that. No, he had a beautiful swing. And that swing is one with that long extension with the, with the backhand off the bat. Yep and the bat following the line down through the strike zone for a much longer period of time, followed with that high finish, which is a, which is, depicts the, 
the rotation and the swing path as a, a more upward um, swing path. So he had the, in fact, he's a hitting coach now. And you wouldn't see uh, a lot of, uh, you know, home run hitters typically be used. Sammy Sosa would probably not be used as a model of a, of a, of a proper swing. Although in, in his years, his swing had a, a very fine motion to it too, but not, not the McGuire or Bonds uh, motion. Well, Bonds is, I want to talk about Bonds for a minute. You know, you, you're, this issue about slow twitch versus fast twitch muscle. Barry Bonds, two things struck me about him late in his career, and a lot of people point to the impact of steroids because of his success at such a late age. Of course, he could just be an outlier, as you point out. It's hard. It's of course impossible to know for one sample point. But one thing that's two things struck me about him. One is the speed of his swing, the quickness of his bat, and I, it would be interesting to look back at his earlier, leaner, physically leaner years to see if his bat speed was close to that. I, I never saw him much when he played for the Pirates, for example. Mm-hmm. Few did uh, compared to his later career success. So it would be interesting to see, one, whether his bat speed did change late in his career and picked up speed, which would be unusual. But the second the second part about him that I think is unbelievable that, it, that I think is often neglected is how rarely he missed the ball. Um, yeah. In his later years, when he was having such incredible success, he was walking 200 times roughly a season, which is so off the charts. It's you know it's extraordinary. Roughly almost a third of the time that he was coming to the plate, he was being walked or was choosing not to swing at pitches. And um, when he did get a pitch in the strike zone or a pitch he chose to swing at, he very rarely missed it. And that I think has nothing to do with steroids uh, that I can that I can understand. Is that correct? Well, it is correct. Uh, he, only, he only struck out 47 times in, in 2002, for example, and 58 times in 2003. These are pretty much unheard of records. Those are Rufian numbers almost because Ruf struck out very seldom too. Uh, very rarely struck out. As his strikeouts with a much larger strike zone were really quite, quite low compared to a modern player. Uh, Bonds has always hit for a good deal of power, but remember, he was a line drive hitter when he came out. He altered his swing and went to the modern swing with the uppercut uh, and what have you, probably in about the year 2000 or a little bit earlier than that, maybe 1998. Um, his home runs per hit really haven't uh, changed much. The average uh, about uh, .26 home runs per hit over his whole career with that one large outlier in 2001 of uh, .47, numbers that McGuire exceeded. Remember, Williams, over his whole career, Ted Williams, hit something like .33 home runs per hit. Um, So Bonds had a really exceptional year, and it was primarily, I think, because he let his strikeouts drift up greatly. They went all the way up to 93, which is unusual um, for him. He was always, as you say, always the most strikeout sort of hitter. Um, so I don't, by the way, his, his peak performance relative to his entire career <clears throat> is still not the exceptional outlier that uh, Roger Maris's uh, 61, 61 home runs was. These yep. kinds of uh, peak performances are in some respects unexplainable because they rely upon the chance combination of many small factors, each of which uh, can contribute uh, enormously over the course of a whole year or a whole season. So you don't think Brady Anderson's 50 home runs, for example, can be attributed to steroid use? You, you put that in the same category as a Roger Maris. Well, I don't want to de- deny or, or, or give credibility to it, but we know that he would have, one, he would have had acne. He would have had small testicles, and I don't believe everyone in would, would think he had that. The baldness they took as a symbol of uh, steroid use, but there's very little evidence that steroids cause baldness. The connective tissue injuries that he had can sometimes be attributed to steroids. Remember, steroids are not just a wonder drug. They do all kinds of bad things to the body. Um, because they alter protein synthesis, the connective tissue degrades relative to the muscles, and so you rip tendons and tear knees out and so forth. Um, so I don't. It's it's just not a magic pill, and you, nobody can 
you can't take a lousy hitter and put steroids in them and pump them up with muscle and turn them into the have the fine, beautiful kinetics of the swing and the 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 timing that it takes to hit home runs. This is a rare and exceptional talent, and very few people do it well. And when you had exceptional performance of this type, you expect extreme variations in outcomes. That's just how peak performance is. I want to know that in publishing, somebody uh, half the papers in a department are written by the square root of the number of participants. Okay, this is the the the, the Desola. Law, uh, the solar price law of uh, human productivity, of scientific uh-huh. productivity. So a few rare people uh, are the exceptional publishers in a department and they're the exceptional home run hitters in a uh, major leagues. And just like uh, a person like, say, uh, uh, Stiegler, whom I knew well, or, uh, or Armin Alchin, or uh, Paul Samuelson, uh, you don't expect them to hit, you know, 34 home runs a year, and that is to do five great papers a year. You expect a few seminal papers, and you expect some years of extraordinary pro- productivity, and other years of not not such high productivity. This is this is the way genius is, and these these home run hitters are are the geniuses of home run hitting. They're the Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven of uh, of home runs. Well, I want to talk uh, about the data and evidence a little more generally now, uh, one of the things that people always forget when they look at data, of course, is the uh, the other things going on in the background. Uh, they always use confirmation bias, seeps in, and, and tend yes. to focus on the one thing that they know is the cause. Yeah. And one of the things that changed dramatically in baseball that you alluded to is the strike zone. The strike zone in Major League Baseball has gotten dramatically smaller over time. <clears throat> It's a fascinating question as to why uh, the, the the legitimate the the, the du jure fact zone, uh, strike zone is slightly smaller. You know, it changed at one point from the shoulder to the I think the armpit, mm-hmm. but in fact, <laughs> the the uh, de facto strike zone is roughly the waist to the nipples. It's a <laughs> it's it's a very very smaller strike zone, mm-hmm. and I've always assumed it's a Hayekian. Uh, emergent phenomenon where umpires who shrunk their strike zones like that were more beloved by baseball because it made for more offense and people like offense generally. Uh, but but that did happen, and that's part of the reason, of course, that home run hitting has increased. But So I want you to talk about the general evidence we have that you talk about some in your paper. Um, is there a secular trend in home run hitting? And over time, that is. And is it simply, if there is, which I think there is, is it due to these other factors? Why do you um, not believe that steroids has something to do with it? Well, look, the underlying reason for my not believing steroids has anything to do with anything is that nothing has changed. We have nothing left to be explained. The shrunken strike zone, which is a considerable shrinkage from... uh, 545 square inches to 410 square inches, if you take, as you call it, the de jure uh, strike zone uh, into account. But whatever statistic you look at, the distribution of home runs has not changed. These are just a few draws from the underlying distribution, which has been stationary over a uh, more than a 40-year period of time. Remember, what we have to do, if you think home run hitting has increased, you have to make the argument that the distribution of home run hitting has somehow been shifted. The upper tail has been pushed out, the bottom has been pulled upward, and you've you've tilted the distribution, putting more mass out on the high outcomes. And that turns out not to be the case. Um, the distribution is virtually identical. Which measure are you using, though? So, I mean, for example, if you look at number of players who have hit 50 home runs or more in a season, all a disproportionate share of those seasons are in the 90s and, and later. Um, home yeah, runs per game. There are twice as many players in twice as many games. Okay, so compared, well, not compared to 1985 or so, 
from 1959 through 2004 is really what the sample period I look at. And if you plot the frequency distribution of home runs, they lie. Home like runs per what's the what's the metric? Because it's per important. player per player per per 200 bats or more. Okay, so this is season. This is looking at semi regulars and regulars per season total number. Why'd you use that measure instead of say home runs per at bat? Home runs per at bat is. Uh, uh, is one of the many statistics I use, but it turns out that it has a very odd kind of uh, uh, statistical distribution because, for one thing, uh, the uh, it depends on strategy. A home run per at bat is uh, a function of uh, the player's strategy, what what time during the during the game he's up, what his uh, what his role is in terms of the. Uh, uh, the, the outcome of the game, and it also depends on what his manager tells him to do. And the bats, by the way, depend on on uh, walks because a walk is not counted as an at bat. So there are an awful lot of things that alter or affect uh, home runs per at bat. But in fact, if you do look at it, it hasn't changed. Um, there are a few more at bats per game now than there were before. Because uh, walks are down. The walks are down, and there are more, a lot more strikeouts now. Yeah. In, in view of the smaller strike zone and in the increase in the number of strikeouts per at-bat, um, you know that there's been a change in, uh, in strategy. That's a great bit of economics because presumably uh, you, a naive prediction would be if the strike zone gets smaller, there should be uh, fewer strikeouts. But, of course, a smaller strike zone... Uh, means that pitchers are more likely to pitch near your power sweet spots, and therefore you're going to swing harder, and therefore it's an elasticity question in economics, whether the, your incentives to swing harder offset the um, mm-hmm. size of the strike zone. So it's ironic you get more strikeouts with a smaller strike zone, but you can't. Well, it is. In fact, in fact uh, you're quite right. It clearly, it clearly indicates a, a change in strategy. Um, and at-bats per game, by the way, have... Um, yeah, they've drifted up a little bit since the old days, but they're they're actually reasonably stable as well, which which may indicate a, a some adjustment in the number of walks as well. They're more intentional walks now probably than ever before. There's just so many factors that affect home runs uh, per game and per at bat. I think the purest measure of power is home runs per hit. Um, I wouldn't argue that that's. The only way to look at it, you know, slugging percentage is uh, something you could also look at. But uh, home runs per hit or home runs per strikeout, now that takes both strategy and effectiveness into account. And it turns out that the older players were more efficient in terms of uh, home runs per strikeout. You also have the fact that the newer stadiums tend to be smaller, um, which you'd also really want to control for. But So to get to the bottom line, uh, if I remember from your paper correctly, Basically, um, for the bottom four-fifths of the distribution, there's zero change. It's flat as a – it's totally flat, right? It is. That is correct. That, yeah. So the bottom 80% of the talent distribution shows no improvement over time in the ability to hit home runs. It's all in the top 20%, and that is um, very person-specific. Is that a correct summary? It is. It's even uh, more extreme than that. Uh, the bottom ninety from ninety percent down, there's been essentially no change. You take each of those uh, percentiles and plot them across, and they're they're essentially flat. Only the only peaks occur among the ex- truly exceptional uh, hitters, um, and that is uh, the ninetieth percentile and uh, and up. You have uh, a temporary peak. In those, uh, in 98, 2000, uh, 98, 99, 2001. Otherwise, it's flat too. In fact, it's a little below now what it was in the 19, uh, 1965 and in, uh, in the mid, in the mid 70s. It was a curious slight decline in, uh, in home run hitting through, uh, through the, uh, late 70s and 80s. I don't know why, but, uh, there was, and then there's a little peak in the late in the late '80s, and then it's pretty much back to uh, normal. It's roughly where it was in 1960, and all the percentiles except uh, 
the 90th and above, which we know was influenced by a few extraordinary people. Well, let's let's shift gears. It's a fascinating um, set of insights. Uh, before we leave baseball, I just want to mention that you did refer to the fact that you'd played with Dick Stewart. Yes. Um, just want to let the listeners know that, that Art had a minor league uh, career with the Pittsburgh Pirates, correct? In their minor, yes, their minor league system. And uh, was Dick Stewart in that same system? He and I were in spring spring training together in at the Hollywood Stars, my first year in baseball. And uh, he uh, he later made it up to the Pittsburgh Pirates for a period of time um, as their first baseman. You recall he he got the name Doctor Strange Club. Well, that's the only reason I mentioned him because I I he eventually ended up on the Red Sox. I'm a Red Sox fan, and oh. uh, that's. Perhaps the greatest nickname of all time, um, <laughs> Dr. Strange Glove. He was not a great fielder. Um, he's a good hitter. but He his... hit the ball at a <laughs> towering distance. But let's, let's shift gears. I want to turn to evolutionary fitness, uh, which I followed on your blog for, for a long, long time. Uh, it scared my wife a lot uh, when I came home uh, and told her I was going to go uh, do some sprints with a deer, uh, a dead deer draped over my shoulders. Uh, I told her that was the goal, but she didn't let me do that. But uh, I'd like to talk about what evolutionary fitness is and um, what you're doing with it. Okay, well, uh, here I am sitting in my early 70s now, uh, weighing exactly what I weighed uh, some 60 years ago. And uh, it's a practice I've been following for about 25 uh, years. Uh, I have a book coming out uh, shortly in the U.S. and in the U.K. detailing the, the approach I have used. But it's really it's very simple and a very peaceful uh, way to live. You simply realize that your genes encode a smart, physically active, highly adaptive hunter-gatherer, which is the profession of all humans who ever lived but for the last, uh, say, 10,000 years ago or thereabouts when farming began. And remember, Jared Diamond and others call farming the worst invention, agriculture, the worst invention of mankind because we know that human stature declined, health declined precipitously, brain volume shrunk, uh, many infectious diseases began to um, invade the human existence because uh, the population densities uh, permitted that along with the poor sanitation. So what I've done is to live for the last 25 years as though I'm a contemporary, a 21st century uh, hunter-gatherer or caveman, if you like. Um, I follow a diet that is primarily uh, a modern, very enjoyable diet, but it's one that's predicated on the fact that the foods that have been introduced to the modern food chain are novel substances that did not have uh, a role to play in the evolution of human metabolism. So I don't eat any grain or grain-derived products. They entered the human diet only as early as 11 or 13,000 years ago in some areas, and recently for, for North American Indians, for example, They've, they're no more than a couple thousand years uh, old in their diet. So I avoid grains. I avoid milk. You, you do outgrow your need for milk. At the age of three, all hunter-gatherer children tend to be weaned and no longer on uh, the mother's milk. And no human until uh, food restrictions uh, began in northern climates ever drank the milk of, uh, of some other uh, animal. It turns out that, you know, a, a little calf has a lot of growing to do, and uh, milk has an awful lot of insulin-like growth factor uh, in it, which causes insulin resistance in, in, insulin resistance in, a, in a human being and is uh, uh, somewhat uh, troubling to our metabolism, not to mention the foreign proteins in milk. Uh, you know, as an economist, we have to we have to realize that evolution is a very conservative uh, process, and that there have been very minor changes in the human genome since the last uh, since the first fully human modern humans emerged about a hundred thousand years ago. They've found our 
ancestors, uh, Paleolithic Cro-Magnon an ancestors of 28,000 years ago have had their DNA sequenced now, and it's virtually identical to that of a modern human. So our genes haven't changed, but our diets and our activities have changed dramatically. So throw away all the modern foods, eat wonderful, delicious, fresh vegetables and fruits of the kind that we now have available to us in abundance, lean meats and uh, plenty of seafood. About half of your uh, meat intake should be derived from, uh, from seafood. Remember, the Paleolithic was a very intense cold period, and humans were forced to the shoreline about 50,000 years ago at the height of the last glaciation. Well, it actually got worse about 17,000 years ago. So if you take that into account, you realize that the rapid expansion of the human brain that took place during that sort of uh, late Paleolithic period was probably engendered or assisted by, one, the intense need for intelligence to survive that brutal Ice Age, and two, the access to seashore-based uh, foods uh, that, that occurred because we were forced to the, the, the shoreline for protection from the cold. So how do you answer the obvious fact that uh, Paleolithic man didn't live very long and modern mm -hmm. grain-eating man lives a long, long time? Our life expectancies are at a maximum. Uh, some of that is due to medical technology. Some of it is due, uh, I think, mainly to more calories uh, during childhood and, uh, and, and infancy. That's precisely it. So what's, um, why would we want to revert to a more primitive diet? And what's the – it's a very – it's a beautiful story. What's the evidence that, it, that it's good for you, other than the fact that you look great for 72 and I look pretty lousy for 55? Well, well thanks very much. Um, so, you know, one of the great advantages of, of – radio or, or podcasts is that when you said, you know, you're, you weigh the same as you did 60 years ago, I can say the same thing. Of course, I wasn't born 60 years ago, so it'd be a pretty untenable claim, but, <laughs> but I, you look better than I do. I think that's a fact. So it could, it's, it's a small set of data. It's only a couple data points. But so what would you do to encourage, uh, what evidence do we have that this is a good idea? Well, on, long, on longevity, you pinpointed it, it exactly. Uh, infant mortality is a primarily de determined of uh, life expectancy. Uh, we do have, we have been removed from pathogens and food shortages and the dangers of the Paleolithic life. We are basically like lab rats. They live three times longer than wild animals, wild rats. And we live roughly two and a half times longer than our Paleolithic ancestors uh, did. Um, because we're protected and we're, we're fed all the time and uh, we're safe. But we suffer a variety of diseases that they're completely free of. Remember when Albert Schweitzer went to Africa to treat uh, the, uh, the indigenous population there, he was amazed at their relative freedom of, from disease. He saw no colitis or uh, inflammation. He didn't see cancer. You can't find a depressed hunter-gatherer. A, psych a psychiatrist has uh, <laughs> examined that question. They're uh, happy sort hard of to kids. measure, but go ahead. They're free people. And actually, they were probably actually a good deal smarter than we are because human brain size has continued to, uh, to shrink. We no, lo no longer have to have those tremendous cognitive skills to stay alive in a very dangerous, complex world with scarce nutrients. Yet IQ um, seems to be rising. At least that's the claim. Well, of course, we're we're all better at uh, at testing now, and colon uh, IQ testing is so problematic. Uh, anyway, you and I wouldn't survive, you know, half a week in a Paleolithic uh, environment, but we could live there if, we, if if the tribe would take us in and teach us how to move around, and we would end up being much more healthy than we are. This is known because um, Aboriginals in Africa, in uh, in Australia, excuse me. Uh, come into the city, they get sick, they go back into the bush, and they get well again. And this has been done experimentally. Uh, the, the foods they eat, the activities they get, they all, they all alter gene expression. And remember, our genes come from a time very different from what we're living in now. Now, in terms of longevity, there's another point to be made, which is that once a hunter-gatherer has survived to 
to adulthood, their probability of death is no is no higher, but for uh, some some uh, slight difference due to accidents and uh, occasional starvation uh, than ours are. In fact, it's well known that when when Europeans live side by side with hunter gatherers in in remote environments, they farm and the hunter gatherers were, were, were hunting and gathering. Um, they lived less long than the hunter gatherers did. Well, let's turn to let's turn to exercise. I want you to you're a um, a big critic of jogging and marathoning. Yes. Um, and I, my impression of the empirical data on exercise is that its effects are on longevity are quite small. Is that simply because – I'm reacting to your point just now about hunter-gatherers versus farmers. Is that because we've been doing the wrong kind? Well, that's that – or, or am I misreading uh, the evidence? No, I think uh, the evidence is – is not so much for exercise because most people do such unproductive exercise, and, and, and the way they count exercise is very difficult to see. You have to pass a threshold of intensity, or exercise really does very little good. It's not about burning calories; it's about altering your muscle mass and changing your hormone drives. For example, if you look at a study by Ruiz, who looked at all the Cooper Clinic uh, uh, patients over a long period of time, and he ranked. Uh, Survivors, um, the, the, the incidence of death of can- from cancer among those categories, the people who had the lowest incidence of cancer death were the strongest. And then the next strongest had the next lower and so on down the line. It's like a stair-step function down the ladder. If you look at people who survived to be centenarians, that is 100 years or older, they have two very common characteristics, and this is true across all over the world. One, they're very strong for their age, which means they're, they're lean and muscular. And two, they have very low insulin. Insulin is the aging hormone. It's the permissive hormone that says uh, nutrition is abundant. It's time to reproduce. So it turns on genes that are geared toward reproduction and turns off genes that are geared toward stress resistance and repair and maintenance. Here's, a, here's an economic argument for you <clears throat> on this. In fact, knowing economics has helped me enormously to, to think through some of these, uh, some of these issues. Uh, suppose you're a hunter-gatherer in the Paleolithic, and let's say you're on the African savanna. The most scarce nutrient in that environment is carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate. When would it be available? Well, if you came up upon a wild honeybee hive, hmm. and hunter-gatherers will go to great risk to try to get honey, and those are those are African bees, by the way. This yeah, is this is scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or if you uh, come up come upon a tuber and dig some huge tuber out of the ground at, at enormous um, uh, labor, and tubers were not readily uh, available during the, the, the primary time of our not the savannah. Right, and so this would have been uh, occasional seasonal fruit. When does fruit come? It's in the springtime. What does fruit have that the hunter-gatherer seldom gets for the rest of the year is uh, simple, delicious uh, dark colors and, uh, and lots of uh, uh, glucose and fructose. Signals of uh, nutritional abundance. So this is the time when they begin to put on weight and when Thoughts turn, a young man's thoughts turn to reproduction. It, it all fits. And, and so glucose would have been the least abundant nutrient and therefore would have become the most powerful signal to the, to the genes to turn on reproduction and turn off uh, repair and maintenance. Because your genes know if you reproduce, then they don't have to take such care of you. You're a dipo- disposable <laughs> soma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it combines just about every element of uh, economics that you could uh, wish for. The disposable soma, the motivation of the genes versus you who are disposable and who've only lived a few years, whereas your genes are maybe a couple billion years old, some of them. Some real trade-off issues there. Yes, yes. So the genes uh, say they can jump ship, and it's well known now that... uh, uh, 
the, the people who try to do caloric restriction are trying to turn down the insulin IGF uh, pathway. That's the, the growth and reproduction uh, pathway, and it turns off. Uh, this is the claim that if I eat very little, I'll live long, I'll, I, right? I, so I want to get really skinny, and, yes. and, um, and what do you think of that? I think it's, bo- it's bogus. Because they live a miserable life. I spoke to their society, and some of them admit to being tempted to steal and to cheat it's because to see, yeah. <laughs> when, the, when the mind is occupied of getting glucose that it needs, uh, it turns to devious methods. And it's well known that uh, in starvation experiments, the people who go through chronic starvation self-mutilate, they cheat and lie and steal and do all, all sorts of, uh, of bad things. It's a very stressful, difficult way to live. But using our economics, if we think back about it must have been glucose that was turning on the genes to promote either life extension or or, uh, reproduction, all we have to do is restrict glucose and we get the same benefits. So the same benefits meaning uh, more repair and maintenance and and longer. So the the centenarians and the um, healthy 90-year-olds – you said they were strong and lean. So you think your claim is that they have less glucose in their diet? They do. And in fact, some are known to eat prodigious amounts of fat, but that's beside the point. Um, they Universally, they test for low insulin. And why would you have low insulin? It's because you're not ingesting simple carbohydrates. So let's turn to fitness. What's wrong with, uh, what's wrong with jogging? Well, let's use your economics again. When you're jogging, you're using your slow-twitch muscle fibers. You're not getting above any particular threshold of intensity. <clears throat> to a hunter-gatherer, if you want, uh, in fact, people have done this. They're, they do jogging uh, with hunter-gatherers, and, they, and hunter-gatherers say, are you crazy? Why would you ever do that? It's a useless activity. Uh, it doesn't build muscle mass, and it turns out that... Uh, it's wasting energy. And humans lived, our genes tell us and our brains tell us that there are two threats to our survival, the inability to move rapidly and um, the, uh, the lack of, uh, of glucose for the brain. So we actually are evolved to be what I call lazy overeaters. That was an energy conservation strategy that kept our ancestors alive. So it goes against the human grain to jog, and I can't jog. I tried it. It's, uh, it's impossible to do. But look at it another way. If you jog, you use only your slow-twitch muscle fibers, and the body says, hey, I don't need these fast-twitch fibers. I'm going to shed muscle mass. And it turns out that joggers, on average, are fatter than, uh, than other athletes. Fatter meaning? Uh, Less muscle mass and more fat mass. As a ratio, yeah. Yes. The body composition is altered because the body sheds the skeletal and muscle mass because it doesn't. It, it gets in the way of being able to jog efficiently. What I love about this theory, by the way, is again as an economist, is the um, it's sort of the, the law of unintended consequences or, mar- or market forces working against you in any complex system. Yeah. The example yeah. I always use is uh, if you think you can lose weight by skipping breakfast and lunch, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, that things that seem obviously effective in, in weight management don't often turn out that way because no, they set in motion these other forces that you don't have any control over that are coursing through the complex system called your body. Um, no, that's, that's very well put. That's really the essence of my, uh, my approach. These uh, top-down command and control diet and fitness regimes simply do not work. Well, they don't seem to work very well. Um, and... I was going to. Oh, so one thing that worries me is that if for those of you out there who are listening while you're jogging, which I, I know I have many listeners <laughs> who listen to Econ talk while they're jogging, maybe you shouldn't take this to heart because if you start doing the the, the fast twitch stuff, it's shorter. You're not going to have a, it's harder to pay attention. But anyway, we'll take a chance. <laughs> okay. So what exercise regimen? If you're against jogging, but by the way, um, the defenders of jogging often claim that it's good for your heart. It's true you don't get to that that. Um, that threshold of, of exertion, but the claim is is that steady exercise, X minutes per week, it builds your heart. Now, my worry's always been, well, how do you know it doesn't wear your heart out? I, it's not obvious to me that, that jogging is, is good for your heart. 
what well, yeah. what exercise do you recommend and why? Well, let's put let's dispel their claim first because you're absolutely right. The human human heartbeat beats according to a random interval between beats, not a metronome. And if you if you train the chaos, in fact, the heartbeat is actually chaos, chaotic. This is uh, the, the new field of so-called fractal physiology, looking at fractal dynamics. So the very sort of thing that I did in baseball, that same type of statistical power law distribution that you find in uh, home run hitting is true of the human heartbeat. So the human heartbeat is somewhat chaotic because because... A lot of different controllers are acting on it simultaneously. It's a, it's a decentralized system with many feedback loops and controllers affecting it. So uh, this kind of fractal heartbeat is a sign of an adaptive, uh, very complex dynamics within the heart, and that makes it s- resistant to shock and to stress. If you jog excessively, you train the chaos out of your heartbeat. It becomes a metronome. Now, the two forms of death from... Um, from heart failure are uh, one, too little chaos in the heart, and the other one is too much randomness. Not chaos, but uh, white noise. And so you want to stay away from both of those. And it turns out that the way to do that is to exercise the way a wild animal or a child does, and that is to follow a fractal variation in your activities as well. Meaning a lot of sort of easy language periods a few bursts of all scales, including some very intense one, in which case the average is meaningless because the average is nowhere near the, the mode of the distribution. Yeah. Uh, it's not a typical activity at all. So that's how I exercise and how I, how I eat. That's actually how I work. Well, I think that's how a lot of us work. Um, a lot of languid periods, and if we're not careful, the languid part gets to be a, too much of the, uh, of the proportion. <laughs> but... Give me talk a little bit practically uh, about your exercise routine. There's two aspects to it. One of which we haven't talked about, which is uh, weight training or weight use of weights, strength creating strength. But just in terms of exertion, most people I think who work out either you know they jog for a half an hour, they walk for a half an hour, they do one thing for a fixed amount of time. X day they're on a treadmill, and again, those of you on the treadmill listening, be careful. This could be. <laughs> Uh, productive but bad for econ talk. Um, what do you recommend practically for people to do um, to, in, to simulate that childlike hunter-gatherer exercise? Yes, well, of course, you could play with your children or your dog. You could go out there and run with him and throw Frisbees at him and chase him. Um, but that's most people are not prepared to do that. Uh, I am. But one, one thing you could do is add a little playful sprint into every time you take a little walk. Or walk the hillsides and sprint up a few hills and then, and then continue your walk and then take another sprint again. When I was at UCI, I used to go on the back hills there. We had a lot of open land at that time. And I'd walk, sprint up hills and then walk some more and sprint up some hills. That's intermittent. You're, you're varying <clears throat> what you're doing. You're exceeding the threshold in intensity by a large margin if you sprint hard like I like to do. And then you're walking and taking it easy and, and, and enjoying the surroundings. And really, it's really enormously react, re- relaxing. But it's well known now that a few moments of intense exercise equals hours of uh, low-intensity uh, work in terms of the metabolic effects, how it changes your insulin sensitivity, how it alters uh, your stress hormones, and uh, uh, a variety of other uh, aspects of your uh, so you know, your insulin sensitivity and so forth. So if you were, say, to take a half an hour uh, and walk, would you want to walk 20 minutes and sprint 10, or is it 15-15? Does it matter? And how, it would you, how would you know whether you're doing anything good or not? Well, you'll feel it. You, uh, you, the joy and the, and the pleasure you get from, from the sprinting is, uh, is really quite addicting. Um, so if, if you treat it as play instead of as dreadful exercise, you'll have a whole different attitude about it, and uh, you will you will see the effects immediately. And just go to a track meet and look at the at the distance runners and the sprinters. Which body would you rather have? 
it's perfectly obvious. Uh, well, the sprinters look happier, also. But <laughs> right, the, the long distance runner has that tortured look of anguish on his face, oh, and the sprinter crosses the line with joy. But but that one argument is, well, it's ten seconds. Of course, they're happy. The other guy's laboring for two hours. Um, yes, but in terms of the the metabolic expenditures, he is burning energy for about four four or five hours after the sprint. He burns energy at a prodigious rate. Um, you don't have to be doing something to be burning the, uh, realizing the benefits of the exercise. And the, the post-exercise period from a high-intensity session lasts for many hours, during which your body consumes huge amounts of fatty acids. So I've spoken here on the program many times about the challenges of interpreting data honestly and the role of confirmation bias, uh, particularly in economics, the um, the charlatanism that's out there in, in terms of empirical work and econometrics. I'm a big fan of Ed Lemer. You are a um, you have a lot of statistical knowledge. You've studied a lot of empirical work in these areas of kinesiology and metabolism and diet. Do you think that our scientific knowledge that you're referring to now is reliable? As reliable as economics, more reliable, or is it prone to the same sort of problems? Uh, do you think we really know these? You've said a few times it's well-known. Do you think these things truly are well-known? Are we making progress in understanding the relationship between, say, exercise and insulin and these issues? Or are there some biases we ought to be worried about? Well, um, when I say well-known, it's, it's true. The, I find the evidence convincing. I suppose I should put it uh, Put it more that way. Only about half of medical studies ever replicate. So they have, and I'm sure the replication rate in economics studies is even worse. Yep. Um, so based on that, uh, they do have serious problems. And they're very fond of these meta-studies, which uh, lump samples and disparate studies together and try to create one large database and mm. do statistics on that. And that's really frightful, I think. Uh, there have been some very bad conclusions that have come out of that that have uh, been overthrown. All that really matters is continual testing and rejecting. And um, I think economics is not very good at rejecting. They're always looking for confirmation of, yes. um, of theories. I, I think there's been a good deal of that in the diet and health research, too. For example, most of the early laboratory work on exercise was done with aerobics exercise because that you can measure in the lab. You can't do anaerobic or intense exercise very well that way because the body never hits a steady state. So the models are far more difficult. So there's a bias toward aerobic exercise simply because of the that's where the the drunkard that's where the light is. You know, it's the drunkard problem. Yeah. Uh, in terms of diet studies, I think uh, similarly uh, there has been a neglect of the uh, damaging role of the anti-nutrients uh, contained in grains and a bias against fat and in favor of carbohydrate when just from an evolutionary record um, that, that clearly contravenes anything that uh, would have pertained during the evolutionary environment. So the longer stretch of evolution helps to give you a, a wider sample from which to uh, examine these things. But they use a lot of p-statistics and uh, t-values and so forth, and very, very few medical statistics are normally distributed. And they always throw out the outliers. Yeah. <laughs> and economists have a, you know, it's even embedded into some programs. It'll, regression programs will throw out the outliers. I'm trying to argue in my home run paper and in life and in uh health and physiology, that it's the outliers that really exert the massive effect. They're rare, but unique, life-changing, uh, and economy-changing types of events. Let me ask a practical question about uh, habit formation and um, application of knowledge, and uh, may as well use me as an example. So I'm 55. Uh, I ran a marathon when I was, um, oh, 27 or so. Uh, a very unhealthy marathon, by the way, of extremely steady 10-minute-per-mile uh, pace, rock solid, 10 minutes per mile. So a four-hour and 20-minute performance, which mm -hmm. I was – which was very exhilarating, by the way, although I couldn't walk 
stairs very comfortably for about a week. (laughs) And as you point out, um, that's another aspect of jogging. It's very damaging to the uh, joints. Um, But since then, my exercise has slowly fallen over time, very steadily. So I get very little exercise now. Uh, I tend to do hiking in the summer, which I struggle to do because I'm so out of shape when the summer arrives. By the end of the summer, I'm I'm in better shape. But then I get back into my fall, winter, spring habits. Yes. Um, my diet is way too sugared and uh, carbohydrated. And when I cut out carbohydrates, I do see a very quick weight loss. But it creates a craving, mm-hmm. uh, yes. which right. I struggle to. So I have trouble staying away from potato chips uh, after that. Mm-hmm. So what, what practical advice could you give someone like me on those two fronts on diet and um, and an exercise that I'd have a chance of actually following, as opposed to just dreaming about. Yes. Well, you. This is the classic. Uh, this is the classic problem. You get the cravings because you your insulin remains high. It's it's driven high by your diet and your lack of activity. You've become slightly insulin resistant as well. You should test your insulin. Most doctors won't do it but I bet it's in the range of about 9 to 12. What does that mean? It means it's chronically high. Okay. If it's chronically high, remember how doctors kill their wives or nurse, broke nurses kill people, they <laughs> inject ex- excess amounts of insulin into them. What happens? They get brain damage. If you have high insulin, your brain is saying... Uh, uh, and the insulin is being siphoned off into fat and muscle and organ tissues, the brain doesn't get it. Insulin is so powerful it can kill your brain because it can withhold the, the glucose that's in, in your bloodstream. So you have to get your insulin down. Uh, the cravings are your brain striving to get the glucose. The insulin resistance is nothing more than your brain trying to deny nutrients to your other tissues so as to preserve it for itself. It's simply an allocation problem between your brain and your, the rest of your body. Most of the carbohydrate that you eat is, is entering your fat cells because you're not draining the glycogen from your muscle cells. So the fat is siphoning as a competition between your, your selfish brain and your greedy fat. And fat has and I get a big, big I get a big plate of pasta, and I want seconds even. Of course, even you do. after that big plate. Well, your insulin is shooting up in response to the blood sugar, <clears throat> and your ins- your blood sugar crashes. Even though the pasta delivered a big dose, it crashes soon after. It's the Chinese meal syndrome too. Same right. same problem. So it's all that it's a tug it's a tug of war between your brain and your basically your fat. Because your your muscle's not drawing very much nutrient to it because you're not using it. So the the simple answer is to change the internal competition for energy inside your body. How you do that? Well, the master hormone that regulates that is insulin. It's not your energy expenditure versus your energy intake. It's what you are, not what you eat. You are what your metabolism does with what you eat. And your metabolism is being directed overly much by insulin, which is, the, as I say, the master hormone. So what to do? You, one, you want your exercise to be productive and to not take a lot of time and to be fun. Uh, easiest way to do that is to do some intense weightlifting. Very safe, though. Remember, they rehabilitate heart patients with weightlifting, not with jogging. Jogging is uh, too dangerous to, uh, to try to... Uh, restore uh, cardio, cardiovascular patients uh, with too hard on the heart. So I would suggest that you work out no more than twice a week, 15 to 20 minutes each time. Start each workout with a little brief sprint on the stationary bicycle. Get in there and build some muscle mass. The muscle mass will consume glucose voraciously and increase your insulin sensitivity and it'll burn fat like crazy. I burn way more fat than most people just because I have uh, a fair amount of muscle mass even now at this age. Uh, on your eating, it's dead simple. 
but it'll take a month for your brain to adjust to the new diet. And during that period of time, you might take a little supplemental magnesium and a little bit of salt because, uh, it, anyway, they're helpful. What you need to do is simply forage the outer perimeter of your supermarket (laughs) 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 where all the produce and where the fruit and where the, uh, where the meat and seafood are located and then quickly leave the store. The cereal section is the most dangerous row in the, in your supermarket. Don't eat cereal. Don't, don't drink milk. Give up breakfast cereals. Eat leftover dinners for breakfast. Sounds good. Now, when I cut out carbohydrates in the past, though, it's hard for me to maintain that. Uh, is that because I didn't exercise or I didn't wait the month? Both. It takes, it takes both together. You, you have to be kind to your brain during this period of time because it's going to be lacking. And a, a brain that lacks glucose thinks it's dying. It's a paleolithic brain, remember. It doesn't know it's here in the 21st century, so it will say eat and eat fat and sugar and do it now. <laughs> and then you'll have to do it all over again when you do it because you get the same insulin rebound and a, and a crash. So in you blood have to, sugar. but you have to go cold turkey. Is that correct? Um, so you know, a sm- easy turkey. You can have uh, you can supplement with fruit. Eat, uh, have fresh fruit around, and that will uh, that will carry you through. And remember, your ancestors starved, and your brain is just going to its primitive regions. Mm-hmm. You just have to tell it you're not going to starve. Um, and you know what? If you exercise, it'll feed your brain in another way, because you release lactic acid from the, the burn that you get from working out, and the muscle. Um, the, the the exercise will cause you to start burning fat, and the brain can live happily on ketones and lactic acid. So you're actually supplementing instead of stealing nutrients from your brain. The exercise is providing nutrients uh, for it. How could it be otherwise? Because the brain had to learn to switch fuels uh, during Paleolithic times because uh, we had this variety of activities and lots of periods where we had nothing to eat. And I would add in that you should skip dinner once a week and just go to bed hungry. Yow! <laughs> Forever or just for the first month? Uh, intermittent <laughs> fasting, remember? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just like my, yeah, like my ancestors, right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess, well, you know, this is where my wife comes in. She, you know, we, she, I would tell her some of these ideas, and, and, and I, think I, I think I read this in your blog that you do want to run around with a with a deer carcass, because that's car- kind of what we did. But mm-hmm. uh, I guess getting chased by a saber-toothed tiger is good. Um, that's right. Uh, and then being chased so far from home that you don't eat for three days, uh, those would all be would be similar. Do you want to say anything about um, – we're almost out of time. What about runner's high? What about this claim that runners give that, mm-hmm. that long jogging and, and – um, it, doesn't it supposedly create some good chemical that makes them happy? Well – Yes, the problem is it also creates chemicals that cause brain cancer. So uh, what, what you're doing is you're releasing so-called endorphins, which are opiate-like substances that the brain uses to tolerate pain. And some people can become partially addicted to it. But high-intensity exercise does the same thing, but it also releases brain neurotropic factor, which repairs and heals the brain and gives you every bit of as much of a high. You mentioned how sprinters are usually smiling when the sprint is over. Um, it's uh, it's exhilarating, and the, the brain is is well fed because you're feeding it lactate and ketones. And uh, two, the stimulation is enormously beneficial to the brain, and it does release this uh, brain growth hormone, so to speak. So, if they want the high, let them have it. Uh, it's an opiate. It's an opioid high. Uh, that's um, uh, it does seem to be addicting to some, but you'll find that a more addictive yet is the pleasure you feel when you leave the gym from a brief high intensity uh, workout. Your blood pressure falls, and you're releasing the same kind of um, of hormones uh, without destroying muscle mass, damaging joints, promoting. Um, upper respiratory disease. I have a, a top 10 reasons not to 
not to run marathons. And uh, it's frightening the biochemical changes that take place from in people when they when they run um, marathons. Now jogging's a little bit different, but it's totally useless. Well, on that cheerful note. We're going to stop. I'm sorry we didn't get to movies. I hope maybe we can come back and revisit that another time. You bet. My guest today has been Art Devaney. Art, thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. I enjoyed it greatly. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.